I'm sure you've had this experience of putting a, some silverware in a glass, a fork, a knife, or a spoon, having the light come through the glass and making it look like the silverware was bent. It wasn't bent, but what you saw was a process called refraction. Refraction is where when the light hits something immersed in water, it can create a distortion called refraction. The spoon or the knife or the fork is not bent, but it appears to be bent because of the environment in which it is. We live in a world that creates a refraction, a distortion. It can so turn things to make things that are straight look crooked and make things that are crooked appear to be straight. And so, living in an upside-down world, we often become upside-down people, thinking we know the right way and going the wrong way, having the right way, choosing the wrong way. In fact, the world can make it look like a straight Christian is a crooked person. Or that a crooked person is a straight person. It can refract reality. God is giving us reality and he wants you to know that you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The physical world is not your problem. It's merely the vehicle for your problem. Because he says in verse 12, we wrestle against principalities and powers and forces of wickedness that are located in heavenly places or the spiritual realm. That is, the physical world gives you the fruit. The spiritual world is the root. So if you address the fruit of what the five senses brings to you, flesh and blood, without addressing the root of the spiritual world from which it emanates, you will forever, I will forever, we will forever be doing patchwork on the physical because we have never addressed the cause in the spiritual. If you and I, if we would ever take seriously the invisible spiritual realm, we would fare much better in the visible physical realm. But because of the process of refraction, distortion, the spiritual realm has been made to be seen as unreal and out there. Because after all, we operate in the world of the five senses. The five senses are very real and very necessary. But they're not the starting point for the Christian who's been seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's not where we start. That's what we deal with, but that's not where we start. The moment you start there, you're in a refracted scenario because you're not getting things as they truly are. You're getting them as they appear to be. He has said that God has provided armament for us to wear as we deal with spiritual battles in life. In verse 14, he started off with the belt of truth. Truth is God-based knowledge. It is knowledge from God's perspective. It's God's viewpoint on a matter. Truth is God's 
viewpoint on a matter. That's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you guys. Truth is an absolute objective standard by which reality is to be measured. Something is real based on how God views it, not even based on how you see it. If you're going to win in the spiritual realm, truth must be worn continuously as a belt because Satan is a liar, and if he knows you're not committed to truth, he will suck you dry. Based on half truths or full lies. He then says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. That is, tether your rightness to the truth. The breastplate, the chest, because in the chest is the heart. Have your heart committed to right based on the truth that you now concur with. And then last time we saw in verse 15, he says, have your feet in the gospel of peace. True peace, lasting peace, comes not from a pill, it comes from the gospel. It is embedded into the gospel because the gospel has the grace of God within it, which has been deposited into the spirit that's lodged in your soul. Your soul is lodged in your body. In the pill of your spirit is all the peace you've been looking for that you've been paying for out there. He says the peace you're looking for is in the pill called the gospel. But if you don't know the gospel or you don't know how to access the gospel, then the peace that the gospel holds, you don't experience. So you go out looking for pseudo peace, false peace, temporary peace, or you settle for chaos management. Chaos management, not authentic peace. And I said, you always know whether it's God's peace because you don't understand why you have it given the mess you're in. It's a peace, the Bible says, that passes understanding. You say, well, how do I access all of this that you tell me I have if I'm a Christian? My assumption is that you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you have nothing to access. But if you are a Christian, if you have responded to Jesus Christ, how do I access this victorious living in the midst of this spiritual battle that I'm experiencing in my physical world how do I access it? He answers that in verse 16. He says, in addition to all, having taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. He introduces us to the next piece of armor called the shield of faith, or let's put it another way, the shield which is faith. The shield is actually faith itself. I want to today clarify faith for you because many of us have misunderstood faith, misused faith, misunderstand faith, and yet faith is critical because he says, leading off verse 16, in addition to all, in other words, and I know I've told you a lot so far, but if you grab this one, you got it all. But this one, he says, is key. Faith. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith. Now, Notice the verb, take up. The first three pieces of armor, he didn't use the word take. He uses the word to be. In the text, it says having, in verse 14 and 15, having the belt of truth, having the breastplate of righteousness, having the shoes of the gospel. But now he switches verbs. The first three are something you wear all the time. You keep truth with you. You keep righteousness with you. You keep the 
peace of God with you. You keep those with you. But now when he comes to this next piece, the shield of faith, he says that one you pick up, you take. The first three you keep with you all the time, the last three you pick up on an as-need basis. It's like a baseball player. He wears his baseball suit during a baseball game. He never takes off his uniform, but he picks up the bat when it's time to end the bat. He picks up the glove when it's time to go to the field. In other words, he picks up those as needed. The first three you keep with you, you never take them off. You never change those clothes. But now you must take up the shield of faith. Please notice, you got to take it up. God won't take it up for you. This is your responsibility. He calls it a shield of faith. A Roman soldier had a shield. When it was time for him to fight, he would take his shield. The shield was two and a half feet wide, four feet long. This shield was so situated that a Roman soldier could crouch down and hide his whole body behind it. In other words, the shield covered all of him when it was positioned correctly. His full body could hide behind it. In fact, when you see them in battle, sometimes the Roman soldiers would link their shields next to each other and a whole army could have crouched down and hide behind it. Because the shield of faith would handle anything that the enemy threw at it. Whether it was a javelin or whether it was an arrow. So the reason why this particular armament is so critical is that it covers all of you if you're behind it properly. He says, in addition to all, take up the shield of faith. When do you need to take it up? Well, he's told us earlier on the evil day. The evil day is the day all hell breaks loose in your life. It is when you're under attack. It is when the finances are so low, you don't know how you're going to make it. It is when you've lost your job and there's none in sight. It is when everything is breaking down emotionally. It's the evil day. It is the day when all hell is broken loose in your life day of your attack, on that day you need to be covered by a shield which is called faith. When they launched space capsules into the air and they come back down into the atmosphere, they would burn up except that they have a shield around them. This shield, in light of the heat breaking into our atmosphere, keeps them from burning up. On the evil day, you feel like you're going to burn up. He says, but if you have a shield, you'll make it in an atmosphere of chaos. So the question is now, what is faith? What is faith? Let me give you a simple definition of faith, simple as I can get it. Faith is acting on the truth. Faith is acting on the truth. Now, if you don't know the truth, or if you don't act on the truth, the word faith is a meaningless phrase. It's talk. Faith is acting on the truth. So in order to have faith, you got to find the truth. If you And the truth is God's view of a matter. So if you're not interested in discovering God's view on a matter, forget having a discussion about faith. Because faith is only faith when it's tethered to truth. Because when it's tethered to truth, it knows the right decision to make. Confirmed by the shoes of peace because you exercise the real meaning of faith. Faith is merely acting like God is telling the truth. A lot of people talk about faith who are not connected to the truth and wonder why faith isn't working. So guess what they do? They go around looking for more faith. 
thinking if I can get a little bit more faith, maybe I can get a little bit more help. But you cannot have faith and get help if your faith is not tied to truth. And truth is what God says about a matter. Let me tell you what truth is not, or necessarily not. Faith is not necessarily feelings. You can feel full of faith and have no faith. You can feel faithless and be full of faith. Faith is not based on how you feel. Now, how you feel may be consistent with faith in a given moment. But at another moment, how you feel may have absolutely no correlation to faith whatsoever. Because feelings are circumstantially driven. You feel based on how things are going. If things are going well, I feel good. If things are not going well, I feel bad. Because circumstances dictate feelings. And you can't always control that. You can't always control that. I am glad my faith is not tied to my feelings. Because then my faith would be as up and down as my feelings are. And we're all up and down to various degrees on the feeling side. So I want to get feeling out of the definition of faith. Although sometimes it is consistent with faith. Whether I feel the truth or not, whether I like the truth or not, whether I agree with the truth or not, faith is acting on it. So you can feel faithish and be faithless. You go to the movie, it's a horror flick. It's a horror flick. You know those monsters aren't real. You know that. You know the zombies coming out out of the grave aren't real. Yet you're sitting there, mm, ah, covering your eyes, can't sleep because you remember the show, and you know it's not real. You know that. You knew it before you went in. You knew it while you were watching it. You knew it when you left, and you're still all shook up. That is because the masters of the media so constructed the lie of the horror film to make you feel like it was true, even though intellectually you knew none of that was real. But they manipulated it so and made it seem so real that it governed your feelings. You will never overcome the movie until your mind overcomes your emotions. Because your emotions are controlling you based on a lie that the movie perpetuated to you. And as long as they can keep the lie in your mind, they can keep you up at night and you're being kept up by something you knew wasn't true. When we allow faith to be defined by feelings, we will always be confused. So let's put faith in the objective place where it belongs. I love this. I love this story in Luke 5. Jesus asked Peter, Peter, have you caught anything yet? Peter said, no, we haven't caught anything yet. Jesus says, Peter, why don't you cast 
your net on the other side. Peter says, Jesus, Jesus, let me help you here. You stick with preaching. I've been fishing all my life. This is the Zebedee Corporation, and we know fish, you know sermons. He seeks then to instruct Jesus on how fishing works. Jesus, point number one, we have been fishing all night. Okay, so let's get this straight. For 12 hours, we have been out there fishing. They are not biting. So for you to ask us to to throw the net in doesn't make sense. Problem number two, we're in shallow water now. We're about to come in. We are not in the place where fish bite. So we've given the time. We've given the expertise. We've studied in school the location. We've got history in this company. we got all this stuff going for us. So Jesus, stick to preaching. We know fish. Jesus says, uh, well, you just cast the net on the other side. Peter doesn't feel like it makes sense. His history says it doesn't make sense. His perspective, his company, none of this makes sense. But then he says, but at your word, just because you said it, even though I don't kind of think you know what you're talking about, but because you said it, I'm going to act on what you said, even though my perspective doesn't agree with what you said, I'm going to act. And he threw the net on the other side. When he threw the net on the other side, he got the biggest catch of his fisherman life. It said he got so much catch of fish that it drugged the boat down and the boat was about to sink. He could now build a condo on the Galilee River. He caught so much fish. He discovered on that day a principle of faith that if you and I would ever discover it, it would be transforming in my life. In spite of what I learned, in spite of what my history is, in spite of what my background says, in spite of my education, in spite of all the stuff I have accumulated, in spite of my own perception of my own natural brilliance, if I would simply do what he says, I would discover there is a lot more to this than I ever knew because I would discover my finiteness and I would discover his infiniteness. I would discover, see, one of the things that's keeping us from experiencing God is we know too much. We know too much. If we were half as educated in the word as we were in the world, we'd be a lot further. We want a master's degree in our subject, but we want to be dropouts in scripture. And we wonder why nothing's working because we don't know enough truth to have faith in it. Faith is acting on the truth, which means I want to know the truth so I can act on it, which exhibits faith so that I can see God move. Now, let me explain something now. Faith does not make God move. Let's get this straight. Because if you believe faith makes God move, then you're going to be looking for more faith. You don't need more faith. You have all, if you're a Christian, you have all the faith you're ever going to need for anything you, God's going to do with you. Let me, let me help you now. Oh, God's trying to increase my faith. No, he's not. He's trying to increase your knowledge. 
but you've got plenty of faith. Because Jesus said, if you have faith, the grain of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. In other words, a little dab will do you. You don't need more faith. You need more truth. Because if you put a little bit of faith in a whole bunch of truth, that's all you need. Faith does not get God to move. All faith does is access what God has already done. Faith is the point of access, not the point of power. The power is in what God has already done in grace when he deposited the divine life within you in seed form as the knowledge of God enters into that seed, that seed expands, and all you're doing with faith is withdrawing what grace has already put on deposit. So stop looking for more faith. You don't need more faith. The moment you act on what God says, that's all the faith you need. You got plenty of faith. So so you got all the faith you need. Whatever growth your faith needs, it will get from the action you take, not by trying to conjure up more faith. Not by trying to whip it up. Just trying to whip up faith. When really all you're doing is whipping up emotion. You're not whipping up faith. He says, I want you to have the shield of faith. Faith is your access point, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He says, faith gives you access to grace, and grace is where God has deposited everything he's going to do for you. Everything God is ever going to do for you, he's already done. He can't can't do anything more. So even when you say, God bless me, it's kind of a, I mean, we all understand what each other means, but all the blessings he's ever going to give you, he's already given you. There's nothing new he can do for you. Your problem, my problem, is withdrawing it, not getting it. It's already given. Faith withdraws it. So here it is. Grace puts on deposit all of God's goodness on your behalf. Faith accesses the deposits. Work proves you're exhibiting faith. Work proves you're exhibiting faith. Faith access grace. Grace has on deposit what you're looking for. Works don't get grace because once you attach works to grace, it's no longer grace. Romans 11, 6 says, once it's of works, it's no longer of grace. So works don't give you grace. Works just access faith and faith accesses grace. That's how it flows. So he says, put on the shield, this covering called faith. Faith is a law, Romans 3.27 says. It's a rule whereby you operate. He says, you're not only supposed to get saved by faith. He says, in Romans 1, you're supposed to live by faith. In other words, this is supposed to be the way you flow. You're supposed to have a faith walk. That's why the Bible calls it walking by faith. You're supposed to have a flow faith. It's supposed to be the way you, it's supposed to be your groove. It's supposed to be your zone. It's supposed to be how you, how you, your modus operandi. But it must be linked to truth. Now here's, here it is. Please notice this. I'm, I'm explaining faith. Faith, if you want it to be real, watch this now, cannot be limited to your five senses. If you limit faith to your five senses, it won't be real faith. It won't be real faith. Because we're talking about accessing the invisible realm, not the visible realm. So we're not talking about accessing the stuff you can see and touch and taste. Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. 
If you can see it, it's not faith. If it's tangible and if it's moving in the physical realm, it's not the faith God is talking about. That's just human faith anybody can have. Anybody going to believe something that they're looking at? I believe you sitting there. How come? Because I see you. And that, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about that. He's saying it's the evidence, it's the substance, so it's real. Even though it's in the spiritual realm, it's real. And it has evidence, it's provable, but it's not yet seen. The whole point of faith is to grab something out of the unseen realm and bring it down to the visible realm. So you never start with what you see to determine whether you have faith. That's called sight. It's a whole nother word. And because we don't live by faith, in other words, because that's not how we roll, that's not our flow, we don't see much grace. He says, in addition to all, above all things, take on the shield of faith. Why do I need this shield of faith? Faith, faith, faith. Acting like God is telling the truth. Acting like it is so, even when it's not so, in order that it might be so, simply because God said so. You go to the doctor because there's typically something wrong you can't fix. Because usually you started off with over-the-counter. You started off with human ability. You started off with your own mind could conjure up. You started off with what you could take care of yourself. So you went to the doctor and you got, went to the pharmacy. You went to Walgreens or some other pharmacy and you got some, you know, uh, uh, something for your stomach, antacid, and you, you got something because you were going to do the best you can to make life better. But your best wasn't working. So you call the doctor. You tell the doctor, Doc, I've got a problem. My stomach hurts. The doctor's going to hear your call, but he's not going to take for granted your problem. He's not going to assume what you think is wrong is what's wrong. Now, you talked about how you feel because you talked about the pain. But in his mind, there could be something else causing what you think is a stomachache. So he's going to do a battery of tests to ascertain the truth about what's really wrong, creating the pain that you're now experiencing. Because all you know is the pain you don't know what the real problem is yet until somebody who knows more than you assesses the situation who can tell you what the truth is about what you feel. All you know is I feel a little something, something, but obviously I don't know enough because I couldn't fix it. So I'm going to you, Doc, for you to tell me what the real deal is. I need the truth. Why? Because until you get the truth, you can't fix the problem. See, as long as you satisfy with antiacids, and that's not your problem, then you're not dealing with the truth, although you think you're dealing with the truth. You're just dealing with limited knowledge. But the doctor has information you don't have. He comes out and he, he says, oh, this is the problem, which is more than just a general upset stomach. He says, this is the problem. He pulls out a sheet of paper called a prescription. And he writes on it words you do not understand. In fact, if you can read his writing, he's not a real doctor. 
one of the ways you know a real doctor is a real doctor is he came right. You have this piece of paper and he says, take this for your real problem. Because those antacids you were taking is not your real problem. Take this. Maybe he's discovered an ulcer. You take a piece of paper that you don't understand to a pharmacist. You give it to the pharmacist whom you do not know. The pharmacist goes back there with a whole bevy of medicines and starts putting your stuff together. That man could be putting strychnine. Wagon train would be going around and then the Indians would attack the 
wagon train, then the wagon train will get in a little circle, then the cowboys will get behind the wagons and start shooting at the Indians, and they go, whoa, 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 whoa. They, they riding around, and they shooting arrows at the cowboys. Well, now, it really wasn't a fair fight, because at least in the early days, the cowboys had all the guns, and the Indians had all the arrows, man. That's not a fair fight. There would always be this one smart aleck Indian. He would dip the tip of an arrow into some pitch. He would light it, so now it's a fiery dart. It's an arrow that's been lit up. He then pulls back the bow and shoots. That arrow is not for a cowboy. That arrow is for the canvas of a wagon. Because he knows if he can burn down the canvas, he can expose the cowboy. And now once exposed, I don't need fiery arrows. I just need arrows. Fiery darts are meant to dismantle you so that now you become open for everything else he wants to shoot your way. He says, the shield of faith is so strong that not only can my arrows get you, arrows that's been put on fire can't even burn you down. He says, the shield of faith is staggering. Why? Because faith enters into the realm of grace and accesses God at a whole nother level. It accesses God. That's why 1 John 5, 4 says we are overcomers by faith. In order to be an overcomer, there's got to be something to overcome. Maybe you're trying to overcome joblessness or finances or emotional fire of the mind or emotional depression or maybe it's a relational fires that you're going through or maybe it's sin and temptation that has set you aflame. Whatever the fire happens to be, he says faith can put it out. Faith can put out the fire. But you've got to define faith God's way, not your way. Any weightlifter who can lift 500 pounds doesn't have a problem with 100 pounds. If, if you can lift 500 pounds and somebody says, well, can you lift this 100-pound bag? Ain't nothing but a thing because if you can handle 500, 100 is no big deal. On the cross, Jesus Christ handled the sins of the whole world. The whole world, for all people, for all time, all sin was pinned on Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago on the cross. All the sins of all mankind for all world was put on Jesus Christ on that day. So if he could handle all the sins and all the circumstances of all men for all time, what did you tell me your problem was? What did you tell me your situation was? What did you tell me your need was? And you're going to imply the God who can handle it for the whole world on the cross, yours is a little bit too heavy. No, what's missing is faith in it, not power for it. What he is suggesting to us is that if we will take faith seriously as God defines it, you will experience victory as you've never had it before. I will never forget it. I will never forget it. This is lodged in my mind. The 1996 Olympics. Her name was Carrie Struss. She was a gymnast. A little tiny girl. The United States gymnast team was in second place. 
Terry Struggs was the last gymnast to go, and she had to make a certain score to overcome the first place team. I don't remember whether it was Romania or Soviet Union, but whoever it was, she had to do a certain nine point something to overcome so that the United States would win the gold medal. So all the pressure is on little Carrie. Carrie stands and Carrie looks down because she has to vault. She has to go, propel herself, flip over the horse, and come back down, standing up to get a high enough score. Carrie takes off. She's running. She hits the spring. She hits the horse. She flips over and she comes down, but she comes down wrong. And she horrifically twists her ankle so that she cannot even walk. She falls down, she cannot even walk, low score. You can hear the hush over the crowd, particularly of the Americans. Oh no, you can see her team wince. Carrie began to weep. Because this whole thing is riding on her. She has one more jump. One more jump. She can't walk. And to do this, you gotta be able to run. Jump, hit, put pressure down and jump, flip, and you gotta land standing up to get a high enough score to win. She's got one more jump. So she's there weeping and trying to trying to stand up. Barely can stand up on the one leg. Can't put any pressure on the second leg. Over in the corner was her coach, Bella Corona. Looked at Carrie crying because they couldn't go meet. He says, Carrie, look at me. Don't take your eyes off of me. You look at me. I know you're hurting. I know you're in pain, but you keep your attention focused on me. You, you look at me right now. I know you're hurting. I know you're in pain. I know you can't walk, but girl, you look at me because I want to tell you, you can do it. I know you don't think you can. I know you're hurting. You can barely walk. I don't want, no, don't look at your foot. Look at me. Don't look at your circumstance. I know because if you look down there, all you see is more defeat. I want you to keep your eyes on me. Now you go back there, girl, and you do this thing one more time. But when you go back there, your full attention is to be on me. Little Carrie goes around, limps to the starting place. And you can see her cast her eyes over to her old coach to look at him. Because she's got to piggyback off of his faith. Because her circumstances don't give her the power to piggyback off of hers. But in her pain and her anguish, she now looks down, half running and half hobbling. She makes her way down. Some of you saw it. She leaps up. She flips over the horse. She comes down. Whop, boom. She comes whop, boom. Immediately lifts up this hand. After both feet have landed, she lifts up this foot. She stands there wiggling, but stands in place. The place goes absolutely crazy. She landed on two, even though she could only stand on one, 
United States Gymnastics team won first place. You know why they won? Because there was somebody in the corner who said, don't look at your situation. Don't look at your circumstance. I know you feel it. I know it's real, but keep your eyes on me. I think if the author of Hebrews here would say, keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He would say, don't look at your situation. You can't ignore it because it hurts. Because if you'll keep your eyes on me, even if you got the limp, you're going to land right. And you're going to be able to hold in your ground the shield of faith running on the truth. 